Now let's go to now to the Word of God, to the book of First Peter. We continue there in chapter two with verse thirteen. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let us live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Lord has called us as Christians to just be absolutely and completely different from the rest of fallen humanity. He calls us to a perspective, to a worldview, to a way of thinking, to an outlook different. Implicit in the idea of holiness is the notion of difference, apart from, other than. And fellow Christians, that's what we are. Some have called it living subversively. That has kind of a negative connotation. I don't particularly like that word, but there is something about it that we are under the radar. We are a minority within a huge, broad road that's filled with sinners headed down a path to destruction of their father, the devil, and determined to their last breath to oppose God and his Christ. We've emphasized that we are strangers and pilgrims and aliens in this world. And I don't think anything will paint that picture clearer than what we're looking at this morning. And that is the view and the attitude that we are called to, the behavior that we are given to follow with respect to civil government. The title of the sermon is The Christian Under Civil Authority. Now it's been pointed out by almost every teacher of the Bible in its entirety that God has ordained governments. He has ordained civil government. And we see this in the scriptures from place to place. We see it in the creation ordinances, and we see it in the things that structured the society following the flood in Genesis 6 to 9. And we see it throughout, and today's text speaks to that. God has ordained civil government. 
But God has also ordained family government even before that. The created, the creation order was a family order. And that differed in its authority and in its punishments and its terrors than was a civil government. We see this in the very book of Genesis. We don't get past chapter 9. We see that the first murderer, Cain, was not given the death penalty because he was under family government. And family government was not given the power of the sword. The power of the sword is that to execute justice. It is to be a terror to evildoers. It is to be a rewarder of those that do well and that those that do good. When we get to Genesis, then in the days following Noah, we find that there was an ordinance with respect to the execution of those who commit murder. Because now we're looking at civil government. But beyond family government and beyond civil government, there is church government. God has ordained a government within His people. And we see it from the days of old, the elder rule and leadership of God's people from Abraham through Moses and David and all down through the years, God governs and orders His people until we come to the supreme government and order under Jesus Christ, God's chosen King, God's chosen ruler over us. And we are to be subject to Him. There is another government that is important in this mix, and that is self-government. And there's a sense in which self-government is a prior government. If you're going to have good civil government, you need good self-government. If you're going to have family government and church government, there must be self-government. And this is what we speak of all the time in the Christian life, that we are to have control of our passions. We are to be deliberate in our understanding of the way we are to behave and in our behavior. And we've been seeing that now in our sermons in on holiness here in the early verses of this particular letter by Peter to the churches. Self-government. In the ancient world, and this is difficult, I think, for a lot of us to hear, <laughs> because it goes counter to the thinking of our day. But in the ancient world, there was a social order. And it was an order that set up authorities those that were to be respected. And the word that's used here at the very beginning that tells us to be subject, tells us it's a compound word and it means to be subordinate to, it literally means to be under order or under 
a station or under a place. And these particular stations were established in the ancient world. They were established by the civil order that was inherited by the New Testament church. It was an order of the first century. It was an order that had the supreme authority in civil government, the emperor. The emperor was the sovereign over the civilized world. In this case, it is the Caesar at Rome. The Bible mentions Caesars. Four of them actually are mentioned. Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero. Under them were governors. The Roman Empire was divided into huge, massive provinces. And the province that affected God's people the most in those early days was the province of Syria. It was governed out of Caesarea. It was the province that included Palestine. Carved out in a special way by Herod the Great and his influence in Rome itself, the little country of Judea had been given a special place. It was treated as a province, even though it was included in the province of Syria. But we find that the governors that are mentioned include the governors of Judea as well as the governors of the province of Syria. Pontus Pilate, Antonius Felix, Portius Festus, and my favorite mentioned in Luke 2, Quirinius, the governor of Syria when Christ was born. Under this emperor, there was an ordo senatoria, the order of the senate. And these senates, senators had authority together and largely functioned under the empire, under the Caesar, even though in a prior century before Julius Caesar confederated so much of it and took on so much power, there was more of a sense of a republic where these senators each had their own uh, realm and their own governance. Under them, under the senators, were the nobility, the landowners, and the various um, power brokers, we would call them, the owners of the means of production and the landed and the monies. And under them were all of the petty or the local authorities, magistrates, kings, proconsuls that had authority over a city-state or over an area or a region, even on down to the local area, something we would have roughly to the Shire of England where the Shireef, the sheriff, was the head of that particular order. And this had been developed over the years, and this had found itself to be in place. And the total number of people that were involved in the 
in this from the emperor all the way down to all of these petty officers and governors and and, uh, magistrates probably made up about two to three percent of the population numerically. We hear a lot today about the elite, (laughs) the elite in Washington or the elite at the United Nations. In this ancient world, if there ever was an elite, it was certainly in place at this time. Under them were all of the lower classes. These were all the urban and rural plebeians, the freed persons, people who had earned or had been granted for one reason or another certain incredible liberties. We would think of these often as a middle class uh, following the days of the dark ages, the the arrives of the bourgeoisie in Europe. These were the ones who had considerable influence because they had skills, they were merchants, they were freed persons, they enjoyed, if they were actually Roman citizens, they were actually citizens of the city of Rome. Paul was one of these people. He had this bestowed upon him by apparently what his father or grandfather had done. He was a free Roman citizen by birth. But then the masses below that were the the slaves, the doulos, the servants, the hewers of wood, the drawers of water, the bearers of burden, the masses, the working class, the farmers, the artisans who confederated themselves into various groups usually serving these upper levels of the society. An order. In fact, that's what the second part of that compound word means. It means under order or a station. It's the word taxis. We get our word taxonomy, the law of the order. We use it in biology and we use it in a number of things. We're trying to understand structure and order. It was a very stratified society all the way down. And under the slaves, you think, well, that sounds like about as low as it can be. No, the slaves enjoyed quite a bit of freedom. And the slaves were among sometimes the most skilled people. And their work was in demand. In fact, a large number of the teachers and the tutors and the instructors were slaves. And this had been developed over years of of war and conquest and the amalgamation and the the, uh, transmigration of so many peoples over the years had settled into this particular structure, but there were still people below them. There were the destitute. They were the poverty stricken. We call them the poor, the permanent poor. Jesus spoke of this group. He said, you'll always have this group with you because he understood the structures of society and that they were perpetual in nature and that there would always be this class of people. And these were the ones that were were given special favor and treatment in the Old Testament law with the gleanings in the field and, and other things. And Christians need to be sensitive to this class in order. In fact, many of the early Christians came from this group of the destitute. Then there was the Zenoi or the aliens, the strangers. And all the way down through this very stratified society, the order is given that you are to honor and not shame. Honor is to act according to your assigned station 
and roll. Oh, that's hard to hear, isn't it? <laughs> in our country, with the egalitarian spirit that has prevailed in our democracy since the days of the colonial founding fathers. But that was the society. It was a shame to break rank and to rise above your station in society and to act with disrespect and dishonor towards someone who was above you in rank. And Christians were called upon to submit and to be subject to the emperor, all in the governors of the day. It's interesting that uh, the word it's used in verse 13, it says, be subject, be under the order of the authority for the Lord's sake. And that's really what it gets down to. I hope we discover before we're through in just a few minutes that really this is not a subjugation, but this is a recognition that there is a sovereignty above the sovereignty. There's a king above the king. There's a Lord above the Lord's. There is a master above any master that we may have. Now this order is going to be spelled out more thoroughly with husbands and wives, and slaves and masters, and parents and children in the book of Peter. And of course, Paul also deals with this in a parallel fashion in several of his letters. That's really what it's all about. It's for the Lord's sake. We submit, we comply, we dutifully give what is due for the Lord's sake. We're not rendering our service and our submission because of fear or because of motives other than pure seeking the glory of God. You see, this goes to the heart of self-government. Where can the Christian show humility? Where can the Christian show forbearance? Where can the Christian demonstrate a nobility of character more than being in subjection to an authority for the Lord's sake? Now, when you do this, both Peter and Paul, we, we read one of the Pauline passages a moment ago in Romans 13, a portion of it. But according to Peter and Paul, there is a two-edged sword. The authority is for punishing wrongdoers, and it is for rewarding those who do good, those who do well. One word that's used in one passage is those that are honorable. 
It is the honorable thing to do. And one of the reasons that Christians are admonished to do this is, believe it or not, brothers and sisters, in the first century, we as believers were suspects. The outside world looked upon the church as a seditious organization, surreptitious in its designs, evil in its intent, mysterious in its religion, and against Caesar. And even from the lips of our Lord, when he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar. And Paul spells it out. It's honor, respect, tribute, taxes. But render to God the things that are God's. Supreme obedience. Reverence. It's called fear. Fear God. Reverence God. The Christians never participated in the emperor worship. They didn't see Caesar as God. They saw Caesar as Caesar. They saw him as a servant of God. To maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where we could have quiet and peaceable lives, where on those safety-guarded highways, those Roman roads, the gospel preacher could move with great speed and rapidity to all the outposts of the empire and take the gospel message. That which God had set in place as an order and a structure and that provided a way, an environment for the gospel to go from the beautiful pastures of Galilee to the hills of Judea to the uttermost part of the earth in one generation. God is sovereign. He works all of these things out. And with all of the evil and all of the malady and all of the, the corruption that exists in this order, God is working through it all sovereignly. There may be oppression over here, but God is refining His church right there. There may be persecution over here, but God is teaching His people endurance and faith wherever they are. God is at work in this order, and we are called to do it for, for good reason. Let me read a, a, just a couple of passages, at least one. Um, you may have heard this one recently. It is found in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the passage that Franklin Graham read as his prayer at the inauguration a few weeks ago. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
There's a purpose for the civil order being the way it is. And it is God's way of working with his people. You say, Ron, that sometimes can become pretty rough and pretty oppressive. One of the interesting studies is to see the balance in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 13 has a very high view of Roman authority, imperial government. And as a Roman citizen, he had benefited from that citizenship. Peter takes a more personal look at that authority and a more balanced look at it. But when you get to John writing in Revelation later in that generation, you see through the visions of John, the rest of the spectrum. There is an incredible passage that I would encourage you to read sometime. It's the book of Revelation. It's chapter 13. It's the rising of the beasts. And there was a beast that rose out of the sea. And it was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. It's also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Most interpreters see this as a civil government. Not so civil, but an authoritarian, totalitarian, tyrannical, godless, satanically inspired government. That's as bad as it gets, I think. But listen to what happens. He was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and every people and every language and every nation. That's an international tyranny. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's a tyranny that accepts no rival that does not recognize God or any authority over it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the life, in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, his rule was over all those who were not in the Lamb's book of life. He was a terror to them. But there's an exception carved out by God, and that's those whose names are written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb that was slain. And of course, that's undoubtedly Christ. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then he quotes a couple of passages out of the Old Testament, one out of Isaiah, one out of Jeremiah. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. That's martyrdom. These are the ones who give their life for Christ. And he ends there, that passage in verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's what it gets down to. It, it gets to be real, practical, and real personal. God is in control of that government. And everything that happens to us, whether it's imprisonment or death, martyrdom, is all 
under the sovereign control. Because ultimately the saints conquer, they overcome by the word of their testimony that is standing faithful and true to God in His word and by the blood of the Lamb. When we see blood shed in the streets, it is regrettable. We should pray and do all we can to not participate in that, nor condone it, nor accept it. But it's not the blood in the streets. It's the blood of the Lamb that makes the difference. I just simply ask today, the question is asked over over by the old gospel song, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The soul cleansing blood of the Lamb.